it's really astonishing to kind of see how much this has backfired because it is truly hurting publishers um, of all sizes, but certainly smaller ones. Welcome back to Runnymede Radio. I'm Christopher Kinsinger. On today's episode of the podcast, I sit down with Lauren Hauser to discuss the Federal Online News Act, which is set to come into force later this month. Lauren is a lawyer and journalist, and the founding publisher and editor of Canadian Affairs, an independent news website launched in the summer of 2023. Please note that this episode was recorded before the federal government announced late last month that it had reached a deal with Google to continue to index links to Canadian news on its search engine. Lauren, welcome to Runnymede Radio. Hi, Chris. Nice to be here. So for those who don't know you, and I expect that a number of our listeners will, but for those who don't, uh, why don't you start our conversation just by telling us a little bit about your background? So you're, you're a lawyer, you're a member of the Law Society of Ontario, you formerly worked for a national law firm in Toronto, but you've been out of private practice, at least as far as law is concerned, uh, for several years now. So what have you been up to during that time? Yes. So I like you say, I, I, I did leave private practice in 2015. I had got to know people in the journalism industry and, and was really drawn to the industry. And there are clear parallels between the work of a lawyer and, and a journalist. And I often now, especially that I employ journalists, appreciate how much of the skills of a lawyer are actually required for a good journalist where, you know, critical thinking, um, you know, ability to construct a, a solid argument, all of those things. And so uh, it's it's unfair because journalists just make so much less than lawyers, but they, they bring, if they're good, the same skill set. But anyhow, I was drawn into the journalism industry and worked in various roles, uh, including at the National Post, um, and both as a writer and as a deputy section editor there. And then I, I made the decision to go abroad to do an MBA partly because I thought long-term that the more interesting opportunities in news media would be on the business side. There has been a narrative of uh, doom, I would say, around the Canadian news media landscape for probably close to two decades about how it's, it's a failing industry. But certainly in other countries, you see a lot of success stories of, of digital news publications that have built themselves into very profitable uh, businesses. And so I, I don't think it's the case that you can't have successful media businesses here. And so that was long-term where I wanted to position myself. And, and so I, after I did my MBA, joined a new startup in Paris for a few years. And then after having my daughter two years ago, was looking for opportunities at larger publications where I could bring that business skill set. And didn't didn't see it, and and having witnessed a few success cases in Canada of, of companies that have built subscription-based digital news publications, the Logic is one, uh, the Western Standard is another, uh, Jesse Brown's uh, Canada Land podcast. It's podcast mm-hmm. focused, but it's another example. There are those examples, and and to me, I looked at that, and I I did a lot of market research, a lot of mm-hmm. kind of pricing analysis, and all those things, and I I thought it it is possible over a period of time to build, if you're doing good, good quality content, 
to build a publication that is primarily based on subscriber support. And so that's what I set out to do. Uh, and I'm really excited to be doing that, but possibly launch at the worst time you could you could ever launch a news organization, which we can talk about more. Yeah, I, I, I want to get to that. And that's going to take up, I think, the meat of our conversation today is, is talking about the ways in which the federal government for few years now has really been pursuing a fairly aggressive policy. I think it's fair to say, um, even from those who who support generally this policy of trying to regulate the internet. But before we get into that, why don't you tell us about uh, your latest project, because it's a very exciting one, uh, can, uh, Canadian Affairs. Can you give us a bit of the background about what the impetus for that was and just where you're at now with that project? Yes, of course. So Canadian Affairs, like I said, I was inspired by seeing the examples of publications here in Canada, like the Logic and uh, Western Standard, Standard. I should mention as well the Taiyi, the Narwhal, which are more kind of voluntary contribution based, but also really built on serving their readers. So I was inspired by those examples. I've been inspired by the examples of very successful digital publications in the States, like uh, Politico or Axios or Vox. And I wanted to try something similar here. Uh, Canadian Affairs, its focus is on producing high quality reported journalism that is pertinent to the lives and livelihoods of Canadians. So we are really focused on what you might call kitchen table issues. Like if, if you have kids or you have elderly parents, uh, the, the news stories that would matter about issues concerning them. Uh, you know, most people work, uh, most adults, I should say, work. And so mm -hmm. jobs are, of course, a big focus for them. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, where people spend their money is a big focus for people. And so we think that kind of making that our North Star enables us to be focused um, because we, of course, don't have the resources to do breaking news or foreign affairs. And so that enables us to bring some kind of discipline and focus to our coverage. And, and so Canadian Affairs, just backing up a bit, we launched on July 1, um, and we have a small team of reporters, three really terrific, outstanding early career reporters, uh, uh, Megan Gilmore, Finn DePoncier, and Hadassah Alencar. And we have a part-time managing editor, Julie Carl, who's outstanding and brings decades of journalism experience. And then uh, myself and my husband, who's involved on the operations and finance side, so we are a small team. Um, we also leverage some freelancers, but that's that's what we have started with and we're aiming to grow if we can grow our audience. Thinking a little bit about the niche that, that Canadian Affairs is looking to fill, you know, on these issues that uh, impact people, uh, you know, very, uh, as you say, kitchen table issues, uh, you know, kind of these very, these issues that hit close to home and kind of focusing on that as opposed to, as you say, like foreign affairs or, or kind of, you know, those, those breaking news items. Do, do you think the kitchen table issues have been largely abandoned by legacy media in Canada, by news organizations, you know, like the, like the CBC or the Globe and Mail or these others? Um, is, is that part of why you think there's an opportunity here for a startup news organization to prioritize these kind of stories? That's a really interesting question. Uh, abandoned would be too strong a word, but I do think that some of the publications are uh, maybe focused on issues that don't actually resonate with the majority of Canadians when uh, they are kind of, you know, a classic example is LGBTQ issues, right. not to minimize them at all. But mm -hmm. I think often people have said to me, like, I haven't actually met a person in my life who is trans. And 
and yet when you look at the amount of media coverage it can be uh, substantial and 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 so again that's not to say those that coverage is an issue isn't an issue or isn't right. worthy but i think someone who's dealing with kind of cost of living issues or the mental health of their children or their children's educational opportunities at in their homes that might be something they're they're talking about and so they might be more interested in uh in news coverage on that topic so i, I do think there's an opportunity there uh for sure and yeah. um and i and i think the global mail is the paper of record and so they have a kind of responsibility to cover breaking news and foreign affairs and things like that and you need to be incredibly well resourced to do that yeah. um and I, because you know, uh, struggling publications don't have those resources. Yeah. Uh, that's not where you're going to put them. You, you know, that that won't be the focus if you're trying to start out either as a new publication or if you're really struggling and, and cutting jobs and things like that. So I so I think leaving that aside and leaving that to the CBC and the Globe really again kind of creates an opportunity. Actually, that's exciting. Well, th there there are two real reasons that I'm I'm very excited to talk to you today. One of them is just. Uh, very personal. And as you'll recall, uh, back when you were at the National Post, you were uh, opinion editor at the time, and you picked up my very first op-ed uh, ever. So as uh, as an opinion writer, uh, part-time opinion writer, I, I owe a lot to you in that regard, because you, you got me going. Uh, but the other reason is because you're both a lawyer and a journalist. And so I think you're going to have a very unique perspective when we think about uh, federal policy on the regulation of the internet, which, as I say, is, is something that increasingly over the past few years has become a real priority for, for the current federal government. Uh, so one example of that, is, as you'll know, is Bill C-11, which has broadened the scope of the Canadian radio, television, and telecommunication division's authority to encompass online platforms like YouTube and Netflix and Disney+. Plus. Earlier this summer, uh, our good friend and former Runnymede Society National Director Mark Mancini gave a talk on this event, uh, gave a talk on this topic rather at an event that was hosted by our Vancouver lawyer chapter. But what I want to talk about with you today, Lauren, is more recently the introduction of uh, Bill C-18, which is called an act respecting online communication platforms that make news content available to persons in Canada. It's a bit of a mouthful, but this, this legislation has really garnered a lot of scrutiny from, uh, from legal experts and from ac academics. Uh, Michael Geist, in particular, uh, has, has really kind of zeroed in on this and has had a lot to say about uh, his views with the problems of the legislation. So before we kind of talk about this from both the perspective, uh, you know, the on-the-ground perspective of a journalist and then start to think about some of the legal implications of this legislation, can you just walk us through the general features of the law? What is it intended to do and how does it set out to do that? Yes, so what's it intended to do? The Online News Act ostensibly is supposed to help publishers by having Meta and Google specifically, now that the regulations are out, it's quite clear that specifically those platforms help fund publishers journalism costs um the the kind of deep irony is i don't think there has been a piece of legislation or policy that has been as detrimental to publishers ever uh like uh, it's it's really astonishing to kind of see how much this has backfired because it is truly hurting publishers um of all sizes but certainly 
smaller ones like Canadian Affairs uh, and and ones that don't have the means of reaching people through print or don't have well-established brands where um, people would know to visit their sites uh, on their own. So uh, it's it's really a, a disastrous piece of legislation. Uh, how it works very broadly is it enables organizations or news publications that that um, meet the, the 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 criteria to qualify for support to uh, tap into or to kind of um, I think negotiate with these te uh, tech platforms for payments to them. Um, I think in practice, there's still a lot to be seen how this kind of actually works. Uh, I think it would be very hard, and we can speak to this in more detail, but I think it'd be very hard for small publications to actually make meaningful use of these this legislation because it, it's complex. And I think it would require you to have a lawyer on your side to even begin engaging with these platforms. So, um, uh, to, to say the least, I don't think this law is going to do what it uh, is meant to accomplish. Yeah, yeah, you you, you clearly have a very uh, strong position here uh, on on the legislation, and we want to get into some of the details uh, about that and how that is impacting news organizations like Canadian Affairs, uh, because as you say, ostensibly that the purpose of the legislation is to compel big tech companies, primarily Google and Meta, uh, to compensate news organizations whenever uh, they reproduce or even simply share a link uh, to their content. And, and the response, generally speaking, from uh, these, these organizations or these uh, big tech companies, rather, has been to simply delist and, uh, and de-index. And uh, I know there are, there are ongoing uh, discussions between some of their representatives and the federal government about how this might play out. But certainly for the time being, uh, very much it has meant that Canadians have less access uh, to news content through uh, these these big tech platforms than they did in the past. So you, you've been very clear that you don't think uh, the legislation is really going to achieve its purposes, and you seem generally pessimistic uh, that startup news organizations like Canadian Affairs will benefit uh, from the framework that the legislation implements. So can you just walk us through a little bit about why you think that is? I, I know one of the, the key concepts or the key uh, kind of terms and designations within the legislation is this idea of a qualified Canadian journalism organization. Can you tell us a little bit about what that is and, and what news organizations have to do to receive that designation before they can ostensibly benefit from the legislation? Mm -hmm. So uh, Canadian Affairs has applied for QCJO status, so it's something I'm uh, familiar with. Uh, you have to be producing kind of general news of what's considered kind of general importance relating to, for example, democratic institutions or civil society or elections. Um, so a publication that, for example, focused on sports or entertainment would not qualify. Um, you have to employ arm's length, at least two full-time journalists, or sorry, not full-time, I think part-time might be permitted, but you have to employ journalists. And a lot of startups don't have uh, the money to employ journalists and they prefer or are, are forced to instead use freelance journalists. And, and I want to be clear, there's nothing wrong with that. Freelance journalism is really valuable. You can mm -hmm. engage a lar larger uh, spectrum of, of writers, uh, you know, you can keep your um, fixed costs quite lean while still putting out great journalism. There's a lot of very reputable publications that 
primarily rely on uh, freelance journalists. And it's not just new organizations either. There's there's a whole bunch, uh, Broadview, Broadview Magazine, uh, The Walrus, et cetera, and they've been around mm -hmm. for years. So there's uh, something quite problematic that to, to even qualify, you have to have these staff journalists. Yeah. Um, and, and it really doesn't, the QCJO designation really does involve um, producing news that the, the government considers to be a kind of general democratic importance. Right. And so it excludes things like specialty publications. It also would exclude publications that are primarily commentary and analysis focused. And there is uh, there are examples of really excellent commentary focused publications like The Hub or The Line yeah. that have started. And and they I, I, I would say they're making a great contribution to the media landscape, even if they're not primarily focused on reported journalism. So I think there's a lot of reasons why um, it's quite problematic that uh, the the Online News Act really doesn't it really kind of excludes a lot of players yeah. by requiring them to be uh, to have that QCAJO status or something equivalent to it. Because when you say it's the government giving this designation, it's this it's in fact the CRTC, and you know we mentioned that uh, Bill C eleven um, uh, also expanded the CRTC's power. So you know with, I'll just kinda... jump in there. I'm I'm not uh, I'm not sure that this i don't believe it's the crtc that gives qcjo status okay uh, i think it's an independent uh panel that does that but i would suspect that the crtc is the one that would determine uh for the purposes of the online news act whether someone can bring a, a claim under that right so well yeah and and uh, so regardless of whether or not it's it's the crtc or whether it's uh some other uh, federal entity. Do you have concerns about um, just uh, the standards by which uh, the status is going to be given out? Do you, do you think this is generally something that we want to be giving uh, to the federal government? You know, we're, we're in uh, a democratic polity where freedom of the press is very important and, and accountability by the government, you know, in part through uh, the press fulfilling its role. Do, do you see problems if the government is the one that is deciding which news organizations, which journalists are the ones receiving this uh, designation uh, to, to be compensated to, to do the work that they're doing. Yeah, I, I think this was a contentious debate when the QCJO status was first announced in 2019, where the government uh, enabled publishers to apply for the status to qualify for journalism labor tax credits. So this is actually kind of a question that predates the Online News Act, but it becomes more relevant now that it's also an important status for the purposes of qualifying for benefits under the Online News Act. Um, I, I, you know, I understand where the government's coming from and, and they are in this position of trying to help publishers. And so if they they want to help publishers, they have to draw some lines then around who is and who's not going to qualify for these various benefits. Right. Yes, I do think it's it's problematic. And all I can say is that what I've heard, I, I believe it was on a Canada Land podcast, mm -hmm. is that in general, the panel that makes this decision around QCGO status has been very reluctant to exclude publications, even ones that some people might have said were uh, disseminating 
kind of falsehoods, falsehoods about right. COVID vaccines during the right. pandemic, et cetera, because it didn't want to be in this business of kind of evaluating the truth or the so-called truth of every one piece that might be published on a platform. So my understanding is that they've been quite uh, generous in, 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 uh, or, or reluctant, I should say, to, right. to exclude organizations from that definition, but, but it's absolutely problematic. Yeah. In, in kind of a high level to have the government making that that call. Yeah, and, and so what you're saying is it may seem that in, in trying to avoid the ditch on one side of the road, uh, they've just driven the car into the ditch on the other side yeah. of the road altogether. Mm -hmm. And uh, so, and, and just to confirm, by the way, uh, our earlier point, I, I pulled up the legislation here. And so it is in it, uh, the CRTC, but the, the language is actually quite uh, restrictive. So the CRTC must by order designate the business as eligible if it meets certain criteria. Uh, so it's it's interesting to see there, just even the way that this has been drafted, that, uh, as you say, uh, the CRTC feels quite compelled, uh, and that's likely given the nature of the, the fairly restrictive language on, on the CRTC's discretion here that has actually mm -hmm. been put into the law. But when we take a step back and, and kind of putting aside the way, you know, um, what the legislation does for the relationship between news organizations and particularly startup news organizations and the government, uh, in what ways do you think the law is impacting the relationship between news organizations, particularly startup news organizations and legacy media? Do you think this is going to level the playing field or is this only going to make it harder for individuals like yourself to uh, innovate and to start up new organizations that can bring a little bit of uh, diversity in terms of what is being offered in uh, the news media marketplace? Yeah, that's a really interesting question as well. I, 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 when I launched Canadian Affairs, made the decision to not join News Media Canada, which is the major kind of industry association representing publishers. Uh, and I, I chose not to join them because they have been the, the primary body lobbying for the Online News Act, primarily on behalf of the interests of legacy publications. Right. And from my conversations with people in the news media Canada Association, my understanding is that there's starting to be a bit of a fracture within that association because mm -hmm. there are all these smaller publications who are really unhappy with the direction uh, things have gone in now that Meta has pulled news and all these things, whereas the, the larger publications have, like I've said before, have the, the ability to kind of reach audiences in a way that the smaller publications don't. And they're also the ones that if Online News Act stays in place and Google doesn't choose to block news through the search engines would benefit the most from, from the online news act, whereas the smaller publications, I think, are looking at the regulations and not even clear if they'll benefit at all. So I do think it's it's putting, uh, it's, it is kind of pitting publishers against each other because there's just this huge uh, division um, of, of interests. Mm -hmm. um, but does that answer your question? Because you might yeah. have been kind of referring well, I, to another point as well. Well, I think that answers that answers part of it, but I'm even thinking about the ways in which, um, you know, we, we can kind of get into some of the, I want to circle back and, and talk about, you know, the uh, constitutionality or lack of constitutionality of the legislation uh, in a moment, but really kind of where those concerns arise, uh, they, they start with this kind of general feature where um, uh, that uh, these big tech platforms are being compelled to compensate news organizations and and some of them, most prominently uh, Meta, um, but also uh, Google to a certain extent, are responding simply by by delisting or de-indexing 
these these news organizations. And so do, do you have a concern here about whether or not that that feature, even if it's indirectly being brought about by the law, is going to have a disproportionate impact uh, on startups? Because I think it's fair to say that legacy media, you know, people are going to continue uh, to read the CBC and the Globe and Mail, the National Post and all these things because, uh, you know, they've got these links saved in their browsers. They know where to go. But, in, you know, for a news organization like Canadian Affairs, uh, you're trying to get up and running. You're trying to get your site, you know, in front of eyeballs on the screen. Do you have concerns here that it, your job doing that now is just going to be that much more difficult because it's not necessarily showing up in people's news feeds or it's not showing yeah. up on Google News when someone goes in and, and types in and, and you're not going to see them listed there? Yeah, absolutely. I I I, I believe the Online News Act presents an existential threat to many small independent publications. Um, I actually don't like to use the word independent because I think some of the legacy publications can also be called independent, but that is the term that often gets used. But uh, no, I absolutely think it's an existential threat, specifically for publications like Canadian Affairs that just launched, where we, in the first several years, need to reach an audience. And so we need channels that are going to reach many Canadians who've never heard of us. And so you can hold in-person events and you can um, you know, send out letters to, to people, for example, but you're just never gonna have the ability to reach thousands at a time like you did through Facebook uh, uh, or certainly if Google pulls news, you know, you'd lose that other critical channel. So it's, it's uh, you know, I already know of one Toronto publication that has suspended operations due to the Online News Act. Wow. And, uh, you know, they're just looking at the, the, the landscape and saying, we can't make this work. And they, like Canadian Affairs, were fairly new. They had started a bit before us uh, mm. within the year, but, um, uh, you know, th this really is an existential threat. So for Canadian Affairs, what we're we're doing is we are pursuing those alternative channel channels in the meantime. And then I think like a lot of publications were, were saying this is likely not the end state. Like Google's already said they might walk away. Um, you've now had News Media Canada say uh, we'd actually like Ottawa to take another look at the regulations and try and address Google's concerns. So I think a lot of publishers are saying, yes, things are dire right now, but we hope things won't end here. And so that's certainly Canadian Affairs' position as well. And, and so in the meantime, we are focused on other channels while, while we're in this lull of very low traffic due to the Online News Act. So on that point, I think this is a good segue into thinking for a few moments about the constitutionality of Bill C-11, uh, rather Bill C-18. Certainly there are, there are constitutional arguments. I know that may be raised with Bill C-11, but we're, we're talking right now about Bill C-18. Uh, and there are a couple of different avenues, a couple of different arguments that have been kind of raised in commentary and by legal experts. Uh, but one of them prospectively concerns uh, the Charter of Rights and Freedoms guarantee of freedom of the press and other media communication. And it's interesting because it seems that Bill C-18 arguably engages both of these uh, components of that guarantee. And, you know, where normally it's it's freedom of the press that is emphasized, there, it seems here that Bill C-18 might have an equal impact on uh, uh, other media of communication as well. So, you know, when we think about uh, the arguments that could be made, I think it's likely that you would see the government say in response, if someone were to say that Bill C-18 uh, unjustifiably limits freedom in the press and other media of communication that 
they're not requiring platforms like Meta or Google to delist or, or de-index uh, journalism or, or uh, news organizations and their websites. But do you think there's a potential argument here that the federal government is basically just trying to indirectly compel big tech actors like Google and Meta to do something that it itself couldn't do directly and in a way that has an adverse impact on freedom of the press? Um, yeah. So when you say getting the tech platforms to do directly what it could not do, what, what are you referring to specifically? Right. Well, well certainly, you know, the federal government uh, it likely couldn't pass a law saying Google Meta, you know, you need to take down these websites from your um, from your index. Right. Unless they meet the qualifications that we've laid out. But in in trying to set up this compensation regime, you're, you're basically having Google and Meta walk away from the game entirely such that uh, these these news organizations are now finding themselves in effectively the same position. Mm. Yeah. So I, I had definitely heard people argue that this act was designed to kind of put certain uh, publications out of business, ones that uh, this liberal government might not like. I'm, I'm, I, I am of the view that this was just really poorly conceived. Right. It was based on something that took place in Australia and there was a thinking that we could just do the same thing here. Um, I have also talked to people who have been exploring uh, with lawyers the possibilities for a charter challenge to this law and everyone who I've talked to about this has said, we, we don't see strong avenues for bringing a charter challenge. Um, that said, I had a, uh, a friend write to me after I wrote an open letter to the new heritage minister outlining my concerns with the Online News Act. And he pointed out um, that, and he's a lawyer, and he pointed out that he's not clear on what basis, what provision under the, the 1867 Constitution Act um, enables Ottawa to pass this law. So uh, for for your legal listeners, this is probably kind of familiar to everyone as a federalism argument, mm -hmm. meaning the government lacks the jurisdiction to pass this law. And then this friend also referred me to two blog posts, one by Michael Geist, who's a leading authority on internet yeah. law, and then another one co-written by the former uh, chair of the CRTC and the former GC of the Justice Department, both openly questioning how Ottawa could have passed the Online News Act, that it essentially lacked the authority under uh, the Constitution. And so uh, that was, for me, the impetus to then start talking to some publishers, uh, and, and we are exploring, actively exploring whether we, to bring a case, uh, a challenge on federalism grounds, which I think if if from the feedback I've received is the kind of stronger basis on which to bring a challenge than on a charter basis. And it's it's an interesting argument to, uh, to be going down the federalism uh, avenue at this particular time, because we're, we're recording this the week after the Supreme Court uh, handed down its reasons in the Impact Assessment Act reference, uh, which I think it's fair to say caught um, fair number of observers by surprise with just um, not only the fact that uh, the reasons uh, cited against the federal government on a really important federalism issue, uh, but just with the five to two split that it that it cited to uh, to that extent. So certainly there seem to be some shifts going on right now uh, in the jurisprudence and in you know how the Supreme Court itself 
uh, is dealing with these federalism issues, uh, you know, if a challenge such as this were uh, going to work its way up. So certainly I think there's a lot of different uh, avenues that we may see uh, news organizations explore, whether that's on the, the charter issue or whether because of those kind of inherent challenges with the, you know, as we've discussed with the fact that, um, uh, that uh, um, the legislation itself is not, you know, compelling news organizations to directly de-index or, or de-list news organizations, whether or not that's on federalism grounds. Mm -hmm. uh, but Laura, this has been a really fascinating conversation. So before we wrap up, you know, again, I feel like it would be uh, remiss if I didn't ask uh, you to tell our listeners how they can uh, subscribe to Canadian Affairs, where they can go, uh, how are they going to get this content? Because of course, it is now going to be more difficult in light of the very legislation that we're discussing. Thanks so much. Uh, yes, so we are at www.canadianaffairs.news. Uh, please check us out. You can access 10 articles for free per month by simply uh, inputting your email address when you hit the uh, content gate on an article. Uh, if you're uh, feeling generous, we absolutely appreciate the support of paying subscribers. That's how we aim to to grow and 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 we're grateful for every single subscriber out there. Uh, so so please do check us out and and I'm incredibly proud of the quality of the content we're putting out and I think it's it's covering topics that are undercovered by other publications. So I, I think you'll like what you'll find you find. And, so thank you, Chris. A number of our listeners, of course, also are uh, part-time writers, opinion writers in their own right. So I, I think you are also accepting uh, pitches for opinion pieces as well. Yes, I'm so glad you mentioned that. So we have a, a very stale commentary section right now because we've just been focused on the reported journalism as we've launched. But we absolutely do want to start running uh, more op-eds. And so we have a link to sub the submissions uh, page at the very bottom of our website. So check that out. It just provides some very brief guidelines on what we're looking for. But we would love uh, submissions specifically on legal topics. That's excellent. Well, Lauren, thank you for joining us today for this conversation. And we look forward to continuing it with you down the road. I know that you and I are discussing uh, several potential uh, event opportunities with our student and lawyer chapters to continue to talk about this issue because it does seem to be one uh, that's not going to be going away. Uh, anytime soon. And it's, uh, it's an important one that we uh, continue to facilitate uh, dialogue on this issue. So thank you so much for joining us on the Runnymede Radio podcast today. Thank you, Chris. It's been a lot of fun. Thanks for listening. Runnymede Radio is a program of the Runnymede Society, a nonpartisan organization of Canadian law students, lawyers, and legal scholars committed to the principles of constitutionalism, fundamental freedoms, and the rule of law. Our podcast is edited by Tony Bedell and produced by me, Christopher Kinsinger. Follow us on social media for updates on upcoming events, including our National Law and Freedom Conference, which will be taking place in Toronto from February 2nd to 3rd. Tickets are available online now. We'll see you on the next episode of the podcast. So long for now.